This is a Balanced Brain Podcast with your hosts, Melanie Nicholson and Sean Clift. Hi everyone, welcome to the Balanced Brain Podcast. My name's Sean Clift. I'm here with my old friend and colleague, Melanie Nicholson. How are you, Melanie? Good to catch up again. Yeah, it's great, Sean. Now, we've got a pretty exciting episode today. Let's just get straight into it. We're here to ta- today to talk about the car crash <gasps> and car crash. your brain injury. Yeah. Let's go from the start. What happened? Well, I was working in Canberra on Secondment. I was at the Child Support Agency. And I was um, on secondment as a minister or writer for uh, Joe Hockey at the time, who was Human Services Minister. And um, I'd only been there a couple of weeks. I was looking to get out of Brisbane for a break. And I was driving along State Circle, actually towards Parliament House, and um, a young man ran a red light and T-boned me. And um, what, I, what were you driving? I was just driving a little red Corolla, which okay. um, a Toyota Corolla, one of the safest cars in the world. That's probably what saved me a bit. Um, saved your life. Saved my life. But um, so I was. It was a. It was a. He was going about sixty kilometres an hour, but I was pretty much stationary. So when he hit me, uh, it basically mangled my car, and the jaws of life had to be used. So the emergency services came in. And so uh, how long were you in the car before that happened? You don't oh, know? God, or did, has anyone told you? Yeah, the accident report said I was only in the car for about 15 minutes. So I was literally just driving to Balconham. And w- were well you there. conscious? Yeah, I, I, immediately on impact they said I was unconscious. So I, I actually, I've, I've even gone through, um, you know, hypnosis and stuff and I don't remember it. So everyone's a little bit... So you got no memory of the actual no, crash? No memory whatsoever so you're just going on what people told you yeah so the accident report the police report um so what was in the accident report how bad was it the accident report was basically i was dead on dead in the car and a nurse happened to be in on the scene and she resuscitated me so a nurse was on the scene on the scene and that's where she was in in the car behind behind me um and then basically it cut off state circle for about three hours so all the camera you know, it was peak, peak, peak traffic, and that was all cut off and shut down. And um, what's really interesting is one of the local newspapers actually reported that I died. So that was quite interesting. I didn't know that wow. for months after the accident. Okay. So, um, yeah, so the jaws of life had to get me out of the car, and um, I was resuscitated at the scene. And I was taken. So when you say you were resuscitated, they full CPR, full. Yeah, yep. So I had, um, by the time I got to hospital, I was placed in induced coma and the Glasgow coma scale measures how kind of in a coma you are and three is dead and I was four. So it was, you know, it was a really, yeah, I was, it was really touch and go for me for about the first 24 hours and I was in a coma for about four or five days. Um, And And so you were in hospital in a coma. Where was your family? So my family were in Brisbane and that's, so how they knew that I'd had the accident is even the, the couple of people I'd been working for a couple of weeks, uh, I'd always gone to work earlier, gone in, and so they knew something was wrong. And um, they had called up really to see what was happening with me. And um, then they had seen a report of a, an accident. And so they did ring my family and they uh, came down. Actually, the Child's Body Agency was really good in Brisbane. They flew my family down on a flight um, my sister actually said it was the worst turbulence they ever experienced. They actually oh thought it was it was all over for them and the plane. It was quite it was it was really strange. But um, yeah, so so my family were by my side pretty quickly. 
Um, but yeah, so I was in the coma. Um, but when I came out of the coma, I had what they call post-traumatic amnesia. So, for so what, 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 what did your family say about that experience? Yeah, so I've since found out months later, I asked them what that was like. And that was really the sense of me not being actually in the state was really devastating for them. And, and of course, they had no idea what my condition was. So when you have a brain injury, when you're in a, you know, when you get taken to ICU, that's really all you're told on the phone. And um, they said, you've got to get here. We don't think she's going to last 48 hours. And that's actually written in my hospital oh, wow. records. So, so yeah. they said, the, the, the doctor said, get here. Get she's here. She's got 48 she's hours. She's going to go. So how, how old were you? I was 27. 27? Yeah. Whole life ahead of you. Whole life ahead of me. And, yeah, it was, um, yeah, 27. It was it was. So your parents had to stay in Canberra for how long? How long were your family there? Yeah, so they were there for a few weeks. I know that, um, you know, some of my family had to go back to Brisbane to jobs. I think at the time my mum was in the government, she was lucky to to have some leave, and so was my sister. Um, But, yeah, someone was always there for me. But uh, I guess for 28 days I had what they call post-traumatic amnesia, so I didn't even know who my mother was. You know, I was asking who my family were because I had no idea who they were, and that was for a month. So did you have any idea what had happened? None whatsoever. And I, it, it, it's really difficult with a brain injury because it doesn't actually impact your intellect. So I kept waking up every day like I was in a fishbowl and just insisting on, I wanted to go to work. Why am I not at work? Why am I not at work? Because I've always... So every day... Every said, single day. It was like Groundhog Day. It is like the movie. You've had a, a car coma. Accident. Same thing. And every day when I started, I came out of the coma, how they ma- measure post-traumatic amnesia is every day they show you pictures of cats, flowers, cars. I had no idea what they were. My sister said that. I couldn't even tell so you, 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 what a, you. I had no idea. You had no idea what a picture of a car, that no, was a car. No, no. So I didn't. So you had no idea that your mum was your mum. No, no. Your sister was your sister. Yeah. So was there something? Yeah. I remember you telling me something about your brother. Yeah. So um, I actually (laughs) thought after a while, after a few weeks. So I'd actually a couple of years before that, I'd been on a big work trip when I was in the air force to Malaysia, and I thought my brother was my Malaysian husband for some reason. So that's what happens to your brain, like your. So you've never had a Malaysian husband. I've never had a Malaysian husband. Never had a Malaysian brother. (laughs) So, but that's what. But that's what happened. Your brain was telling you. Absolutely, and what's really frightening, and, and I guess. For months after, I was terrified of all the subconscious, you know, those thoughts that you don't want people to hear about you. And this is what happens with brain injury. Think about all the worst things that you think about people or you say, and they all came out of my mouth. So after a while, I was even saying things like, oh, I haven't showered for days, I stink. And I wasn't, you know, like I would just be every single thing that you keep private to yourself was coming out of my mouth. And when I, that was probably one of the worst things I found out weeks later because I felt so incredibly exposed and what have I said and what have I done? And, oh, yeah, of course. You know, and it would have been some pretty interesting conversations with your brother after that. It was that. hilarious. Like this, <laughs> and, that's, and I guess that's, that's what really, and, and, and even, even the neurosurgeons had said to my family, the fact that I had, you know, I'd always had a really strong emphasis on my career. I'd always studied a lot. I've been a good student and a sense of humour. That's actually what really got me through because I really... Some things weren't laughable for a long time. Oh, sure. But um, I think at the at the core of me I knew I had this quite dry sense of humour and, and I could 
but not initially like it was it was a really it was a part of me that I lost for a long time and I and that's why I felt that emotion of shame come out a lot because I really just had not known what I'd done or said for months and that was really a devastating part for me. So when did you have to go in for surgery? So and did you know So initially, so very the very first thing they had to do when I got to hospital was cut open my skull and my brain was swelling and it was the fluid on your brain actually they need to cut the skull to allow that fluid to release. Hmm. Um, so they cut out I had a left brain injury which affects your right right part of your body um, and they cut out my entire left side of my skull uh, to release the pressure and so then I had to have a, a helmet you, some people have probably seen it on the, you know with people have had head injuries and I also broke my neck at my occipital lobe and then I found out two years after the accident that both my lungs collapsed too but no one cares about that when there's a brain to be yeah, fixed yeah. you know like that was not the immediate concern so I literally looked like yeah, it was it, when they showed me photos. It was it was really distressing for me. I was in a wheelchair for a couple of weeks because I couldn't walk. I had to actually be airlifted back to Princess Alexandra in Brisbane because that's where my family were. So that's yeah. where they airlifted. That was my first memory. Um, now, now think, yeah. just just before we go, how long ago was this now? So this is uh, in two thousand and five. So this is sixteen years ago. Sixteen years ago. So yeah. what are the effects? physically now yeah so what happened was I think the most devastating thing for me was everyone who's had a brain injury is must um, sit a compulsory eye test because generally your your brain your brain controls your vision that's what a lot of people don't understand but for most people they can go back to full driving but for me I didn't understand that the part the base of my skull that I fractured part of the top of my neck is what they call the occipital lobe which is actually what controls your vision so it wasn't until six months later my brother drove me to an ophthalmologist in Brisbane at Wesley Hospital and he was really brutal. I went in and I did all these tests and it was all it took about an hour and I thought I'd, I'd passed with flying colours and when I went into his office he's like, um, your vision's been affected, you're legally blind, you'll never drive again. And I come out of the, his office and I'm just bawling and my brother who just thought this was a random, you know, check of my eyesight, he didn't know what to do, he was only 21 at the time so... Um, yeah, it was really devastating, and and that was for an independent woman, you know, who'd been living alone, to be told that you ne- you'll never drive again, and that hasn't changed, unfortunately. But I, I don't really ever think about it anymore because there was just so much more I had to do to rebuild myself, you know, like. You so know. let's talk about that. Let's talk about the rebuild. When did that really start? I mean, I know it would have started in hospital in Canberra, but mm. when did the rehabilitation start, and what did that involve? So I was flown back to the brain injury unit at Princess Alexandra in Brisbane, which is actually one of the best brain injury units in Australia. And, you know, for, for six weeks, I every single day was intensive physio. I, I remember learning to walk. That was really frustrating. I had to learn how to do simple things like cooking again, have a makeshift kitchen. Um, I, I had to learn how to use utensils. I didn't know how to use a knife and fork. It was uh, pretty much like being a baby again. Wow. And the difficulty was, but in my mind, nothing had changed. And so there were times when I'd be out in the hallway of the brain injury unit, and I have some recollection of this, screaming to be let out. Like, really? Like I say to my parents, it was like, like one, one flew over the cookies yeah. next. Like, it was, I, 
would just scream, I don't belong here. And clearly I did. Wow. But but the cognitive part of me, like because I had such a strong uh, sense of identity with my brain, like it was everything to me. My memory, my intellect was was literally me. That is how I'd always got through school. That's how I got promoted. Yeah, like it was, it was literally me. That was what I built my identity on and that had just come crashing down around me. So the loss of that of control over my life and the loss of my short-term memory and my ability to pretty much do anything was... So your short-term memory was shot, but what about your long-term memory? So that is a really strange thing in brain injury. Long-term memory is rarely affected. Right. So I would actually be having, like even my family would say, even during that period of post-traumatic amnesia when I didn't even really know who my parents were, I'd have work colleagues come in and they would ask me something and I would start sprouting off legislation and things like it. it wow. We don't understand as humans that that's a different part of the brain. And like I had this really intact working memory for long-term, you know, things that I'd always done and researched, but short-term I didn't know what day it was. Yeah, you know? right. And that is how amazing the brain is. And an incredible thing, once I finally got out of rehab and I had my final you know, six-month checkup with the neuro, um, the neurosurgeon who happened to be a really well-known neurosurgeon in Brisbane and he was in his 70s by then. And I had asked him about this thing, neuroplasticity. I'd, I'd heard of it. I'd done everything I could to read about how I could just repair myself. And he said to me, there is no such thing. And that was 2005. Okay, wow. And even by that... So the, yeah. the science has come so far since then. It was incredible. Like, I... Yeah, it would, I was written off even by neuropsychologists who would say I would never study again. I went on to do my master's a few years later. I, I was pretty much so, so everything what, was pessimistic. I know you're not a doctor, but what do you understand about neuroplasticity? At that time, I it was really quite new in Australia and I, was, I had just been reading about how you could actually rewire your brain. And at the time, I still hadn't had full my full cognition have not returned, but there was still a, a part of me that felt like, this is actually something I could do. I could go back in. And what I could find and what my neurosurgeon actually did agree with me was that I should get back to work as soon as possible. Really? And no, not even not even part-time. He said just go full because I was young and that's all they could recommend for someone in their 20s was to, to just basically smash themselves and get back into it. And that caused a lot of conflict in my family with my colleagues because once he gave me that green light then that tagged that part of me, that perfectionist part of me that was like, I'm I'm getting back into it. And that was at the complete detriment of my mental health and emotional well-being. So, so what, what, what happened there? So the, the doctors are saying go back to work. Mm. Your family is saying don't go back to work. Yeah. Well, that, what, what were you thinking? I was, once that doctor said to me to do that, and then we have to remember neurosurgeons are very focused on the mental capacity. Like they have no... My experience of anyone to do with my brain injuries, they did not care at all about how I was feeling or what I was, you know, at one point they said go to the social work and people don't realise social workers aren't psychologists. They're just there to, to sort out, you know, like the details. But no one cared about anything that I was feeling or the spiritual side of things. They literally, my brain was treated like a car part to be repaired and I took that literally because I didn't have the capacity to look at all a holistic 
view of So you were keen to go back to work? Absolutely. That because what I Because you were sprouting legislation. Absolutely. And and for a long time what I didn't realise, and this came years later, is I completely disassociated myself from my accident. It I pretended it never happened. And it was a constant fight every day to yeah, to, to go into work. I would be overwhelmed completely but I would just go and wag meetings I couldn't sit in places for a long time like doing the type of complex work I was doing I ended up managing teams again just within 12 months of my accident it was I had endless memory aids I it was a relentless so what do you mean by memory aids you you were creating things so you could remember so I could remember I remember this perfect I was coaching at the time and which was a really novel concept back then in 2005, but I was actually doing it in the government and it was a really amazing coaching model. And I, I was so lucky to have a friend that I was actually coaching and I'd, I'd done this beautiful coaching report for her and it was all perfectly articulated and I, I had this amazing session with her and she just touched me on the hand and she said, Melanie, this is amazing, but we had this exact conversation one hour ago. Wow. I did not remember going into that room and having that conversation. So it must have been a very supportive workplace. It was amazing. (laughs) So, But there was conflict there as well because some some leaders were really pushing me because I had been slated for promotion and I was, it was the first time in my career that I'd been actually like, this is going to be someone who goes far. And for the first time in my life, then I, I got, that's where my well-being was with how well I was doing at work and I didn't want anything to change that. So I had mentors and everything, some who were pushing me. Friends, really good friends were going, this is too much, you must stop, you have to slow down. So I had this constant conflict of, you know, like people who were really supporting me to do, to do that, to push myself. Yeah. And then on the other hand, people saying, this is so wrong. <laughs> so, so when did... So how long were you able to keep that up? So in reality, like, I, I mean, as I said, I went on, so I started my, my master's degree in 2008, so three years after my, my accident. And when I actually graduated from that, I sent a copy of my graduation, my master's transcript to the neuropsychologist who said I would never study again. Like it was almost like I was defiant in, 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 at every turn. And then... That same year, I when I finished, um, I went on a four-month trip overseas and I climbed Everest Base Camp and I got very ill because I had a history of hypoxia and I got altitude sickness and I was, like, almost dying on that trip. But there was something, there was a compulsion in me to prove to the world that I was exactly the way I was before. But you, but you weren't? I wasn't. And the other thing, too, that I didn't come to realise is the person I was before was was not the perfect person. I had struggled with mental health issues ever since I left the Air Force. And so I had these underlying issues already going into the brain injury. And then I started, when I got appointed to a board dealing with brain injury, I learned about what they call dual diagnosis, which is a lot of people who experience brain injury have already had mental health issues, but they actually don't recognise that when people have brain injuries. So you're already dealing with underlying issues. Then you have a brain injury and that, that part of your history is completely disregarded. But that's a part of myself that I'd suppressed for a long time. So, you know, no one had really known about that. I'd struggle with eating disorders and depression. But, um, and that was amplified when I, after I had my brain injury. So I had multiple 
issues going on. And but I, here I was, this well-functioning, you know, so well-functioning from the outside. From the outside. Oh. So when did the wheels start falling off? Uh, I would. In 2011, I just decided to go and do my own thing because I thought, I think that was my way of recognising that I just couldn't be, it was it was just too full on at work and that was like like five years later. And But then that just became another relentless project of finding clients and what am I going to create out of this? And, and it wasn't until 2016. So I had... Now, when, when did we meet? It must have been around 2013. Yeah, 2013, 2014. And that's when I was... Doing everything I could in the business, consulting and and I was really. But you were working. Um, you were working as well at one point. Yeah, I yeah. So I was working as a family practitioner. So I was doing divorce mediation. So I gone. I, I had come out of that, but then I was doing private mediation. So doing really, you know, really high stress stuff. And when I was meeting you, I was pretty much like on on a spiral downwards. I think. And and in two thousand and sixteen. Just to challenge myself any more, I decided to join CrossFit, which I'd never heard of before. I just walked past it one day. And, um, you know, I, I really loved that for a while, but we had a competition one day and I didn't realise that I had been in a state of dehydration for a long time. And we had the competition and I ended up in hospital with a condition called exercise-induced rhabdo, which is what a lot of marathon runners get, some CrossFitters get, where you have almost complete kidney failure. And I was... Oh, wow. I, I nearly died again in the Wesley Hospital. Jesus. I was in there for, really for five days. You were trying to leave us, weren't I you? Just, Yeah, that's exactly what was happening. So you were in the state of mind that you just had to prove, was it to yourself or prove to everyone else that you were okay, you were, you were fine? You were both, like, both. I had So I put too much emphasis on how people thought of me externally before I'd done the work of understanding it came from myself. I'd, I'd always done, I've always had a high level of self-awareness, but it was it was more about outside myself, understanding the dynamics in other relationships and people at work and never really looking at what was driving me and what was motivating me. So when I had, I had some issues with my mum when I got hospitalised again and she'd finally said to me, I said, why aren't you coming in to see me? And she just said to me on the phone, why do you want to die, Melanie? And that was the catalyst for me going, well, why do I? Because I think that really shook me and I'm like, what am I doing? You know, what am I doing? This relentless, relentlessness, that's how I would describe it. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. Look, yeah. We can take a minute if you want. No, no, I'm happy it. to push through that. I just think that. That's when I really just hit the wall and and I went, oh, shit, <laughs> you know, and that's when I made a, a really big decision that I would go into long-term therapy and address all the underlying stuff that had been there post, post and pre-accident and that was transformative. I found this a most amazing therapist and we worked, yeah, I, I did the hard yards for 16 months and, yeah, it was so much came out of that. It was, there were lots of things that came out of that. I'd been single, you know, since I was 21. So I had not been in a relationship all that time, you know, well into my, that was, I was 38 by then. Mm. Um, I realized I'd been commitment phobic, avoiding intimacy, scared of vulnerability, scared of putting myself out. There were so many things that came from feeling not good enough. And it was all comes down to self-worth. So, so that's, so you're feeling not good enough. So 
to feel better, you just overachieve. Everything. And so push yourself. Yeah. Everything. You've got to get down to what that core thing is, which is not good enough. And that's something that have, I've always had as a child as well. And so you got to really go down to the root cause and that, and it wasn't until I did that hard work. And the thing is, I, I will admit that I actually kind of dropped out of work. I actually had a, a fair amount of savings to live on and I literally just put myself through hardcore therapy. Mm. And then I decided... You needed a break. I needed a break. I really needed a break. And that's what good friends end up saying to me. Like, I, I was just completely shattered emotionally, physically, meant everything just... Well, I remember when you, you said to me, oh, I'm going to move back to Newcastle. Yeah. So that was I, I love it there. I love the beach. Yep. And I, I thought, oh, that'd be great. I kept you know, dreaming about it. you got to write your book. Yeah. So I started writing and, and I was even so perfectionist that I said to my therapist after 16 months, I said, I want to move to Newcastle. I'll keep dreaming about it. And that's my intuition. That's when my heart really directed me. And she and I said, but is it running away if I'd done my work? And she's like, Melanie, you know, like I couldn't even ease up after that time. You know, I was, it, yeah, so it was really moving to Newcastle was critical for me. And Newcastle really became my soulmate in a way that that, opened me up to so much and and I did what they call exposure therapy it's not a real thing in psych terms but it was about testing things out like sitting in a cafe by myself at night meeting people and asking them out on dates and strangers and I actually had a list of things that I had to do to send back to the therapist in Brisbane and it was basically rebuilding my life from my heart not my head okay so look in our introduction podcast, we spoke a lot about identity. Mm. So let's talk about that with you. Like, what was your identity before the accident? I did not know. What what I had constructed is what I Yeah, so what you people... constructed, what was it? What, well, what, just... what would you have said, oh, okay, you know, if I met Sean pre-accident, yeah. what, would Sean, what would Sean think of me? Who would he think I am? Well... My entire identity was really about my work. Like right. everything was having been ex-defense where literally they make your life work. So your friends are work, you're in the, you know, like it's, yeah, it, it's, work. it's almost like it's designed like that, right? So for wartime, people are like it's a family. So in a way, work was my entire identity. It was everything. If, I, if, if I'm not working, who am I? That's literally what it came down to. So, you know, it's it's something that I've spent a lot of time coaching, particularly my male clients, about because that's a big part of their identity as well. Because I came from a very a family which really valued men and valued work. So work ethic was everything. Yeah. And men were always working. If they weren't working, then there was no point to them. Mm, yeah, and, I can tell you a lot about that. <laughs> so I grew up, and and to me. So the women in my family not only had to work but were also doing all the cooking, cleaning, child-rearing and men were out having, you know, out in the workplace or they're drinking beer. Women at home were cooking, working and slaving away. So in my mind I wanted to be like the men because I saw them drinking beer and working <laughs> and that's literally why I joined Defence. And then when I went into the Child Support Agency it was a very stressful government department which had a very similar culture to the military like we we were big drinkers, big straight. Like it, I replicated my life in the military into the government. Yeah. And it was all about that masculine side of it. That was really what. If I look at it on a spiritual level, I literally thought 
that to be successful in my life was to be like a man. Right. So your identity pre-accident was all based around work. What job you were doing? I wanted to be in the boys club. I wanted to be in the boys club because that's where I thought where my value would be. So then you have the accident. You can't work Mm. until they say the best thing for you is to go back to work. Mm. I literally didn't. But you can't even remember people's names. No, I literally had had a titanium plate put back in my head, Sean, and I I put my wig on. I still had the staples in my head, and I went back to work. Dear idea. And that is. So then you've you're put a put a big mask on really and said, I'm back, I'm yep. normal, I'm working and wh- when's the next promotion, when's the next challenge? It, and it's yep. not enough challenge, I'm gonna go and hike base camp. That is I that the mask is a perfect analogy of, of how I live my life, really, before my accident, but then after it became Teflon. <laughs> it was like so, the so Teflon then, mask. Then the mask comes off what? How many years after this? 2016. Is it literally I landed in Newcastle the first day. I I picked a place that I actually wanted to live. I I wanted a courtyard where I could build a garden. My friend who I reconnected with, Megs, she came and helped me build a um, garden, which was metaphorical. Like we built oh, this great. beautiful I, garden. I'm reading this book at the moment <laughs> called yeah. the um, the um, Mindful Gardener. I think it's called. It's, mm. And I'm, I'm only the first couple of chapters in, but it's pretty fascinating. I'd like to talk about it more down the track. But. Well, she got me to put my hands in the earth and just, you know, like do basic and simple things because she lived a life like that. And and then the first night I had someone knocking on my door and I'd lived in, in Brisbane. I'd lived in fortresses with intercoms and security and literally I had someone knocking on my door and it was the neighbour offering to help me set up things and right. honestly from that from the day I moved to Newcastle I just decided that I'd be open to any experience I would take the the mask off so you must have felt mm. a little lost there for a while yeah I did but but not for very long like it was as soon as I started getting myself out there and forcing myself to meet people and to to try different things and create a new way of living that was not about work so I did not work so then what are you telling people um, so then what, what does your identity become? So, you know, what was really interesting is my therapist has said, do not tell people that you are self-employed or that you're trying to find clients for the first six months. That was my challenge was to just tell people that I had moved there and I was having a break. <laughs> and that was really – so the next level was would be yeah, – No networking. No networking, nothing. No, no, no trying to find the next opportunity. Yeah, I might have had a coffee – but um, I literally spent six months, and do you know what? I here's the thing that has been really hard for me to say is I spent about five months of that six months sitting on the beach listening to meditation apps, right? <laughs> and and going to yoga and a dance meditation and, and becoming a hippie kind of, and yeah. that's actually where I really found my soul, you know. And eventually, I went back to the gym because I've always belonged to a gym. Exercise has always been really critical to me, and then you know I started training. 12 months later um, with a PT and then he became a partner. Wow. But I think the important thing is for people to know that it, that it was finding me first before I found my partner. And yeah, I think that's yeah. the important story. I think when I say Newcastle, my soulmate, that that really is true. I really actually truly came to look in the mirror one day and I'm like, I really like the person that I am. Great. <laughs> and, you know, it's it was an approval of myself and... Louise Hay talks about this 
in her really famous book, but it was just a simple thing for me to look at myself and say, hey, you know what, I actually really like who I am now. And everything, it doesn't mean your life wasn't without challenges. Like it was it was tough to set back up to business in Newcastle, but um, it feels like the person that I was back in 2016 is actually not even a remote, a replica of who I am now. But I, I don't want to dismiss that part of myself because that would be to dishonour my life. But, yeah. So let's come to now. Who's Melanie now? Who's Melanie now? Well, I, I'm still, you know, this is the thing, Sean, like I think for the, until last year, it had been sweet sailing for me. Like life had been, it kind of was still like the Newcastle Beach girl you know, just cruising and doing my own thing. And then last year with COVID, wow, I almost felt like I'd gone back to square one. Like I really got back into old patterns and habits. And then I started really judging myself. Like, you know, I think I said to you, like when in the lockdown, because I've always consumed a lot of news, I got on Twitter, I started, you know, like just really becoming fear driven. So I moved out of love and compassion and back into fear and it kind of just proved to me that we, we you can't just go to love and light after you know like it, it literally was just about me recognizing those old patterns and using the new tools that I've learned to to deal with that but that was a big challenge because I've literally spent four years in this kind of state of really contentment I would for the first time in my life right and then last year was a challenge to that. And what's interesting, I'm still in this loving relationship. I still got this great life, but I let external fear tap into me. And so I'm still always vulnerable, like everyone, to what's going on around me. But then I just came back to, I had to go back and look at my, you know, what what have I learned over the last four years? Where's so my old notes? Learned? What have you learned? Well. what's What's the lesson? Here's the lesson. It's. I, I think what my biggest thing is all the conflict that we see going on outside in communities and wherever is all about internal conflict. So I had to come back to the centre. I had lost all my meditation habits last year. I had to go back to that because what I've learned, Sean, is that everything that we need to know is inside of us. Yeah. And that's your intuition. You can call it what you want. People call it God, call it intuition, gut instinct. Yeah. It, the truth is always within us. And when I came back to that, when I really, you know, I'd even just go down and sit in the park and sit in the grass and sit under a tree, and it's just that moment of stillness that would bring me back there. Right. And it's just that realisation that it's always available to me. And I forgot that last year for the first time in a long time. But it then I remembered it's always here. And yeah. for a long time I didn't have that. So I'm back. So you're back? <laughs> yeah. You've got a book coming out? I've got a book coming out. And, the, of course, with COVID that's been put off a bit it's with two publishers um this year is you know a lot of authors are saying it's not a good year to release a book it's still pretty but next year there's hopefully people wanting you know there's people gone back to reading books so i'm kind of excited about that yeah, so yeah. i would say yeah next year would be the like likely when it's coming out but it's taken me seven years to write that but yeah i finally finished it and it's Great. yeah it's off so so is would we say Melanie's in a happy place now? I am in a happy place, but happiness is not constant. That's what people need to understand. It, it comes work. as waves, right? Like the, I use the analogy of a wave. The ocean is never one, you know, it's it can be still, it can be wild. It, it's just, but underneath there's that stillness. And that's how, 
I use the metaphor of the wave. There's always that calmness underneath and the waves on top. So um, I don't like to use happiness. I like to think I've now, I, I come back to here, my heart, and I use the tools and the lessons that I've learned to know that I can deal with things, whatever comes up. Well, there's no doubt about it that you've proved your resilience. Yeah, yeah. I had a, I had an issue with the word resilience for a long time because I think resilience, I use that word for a long time to actually go, I'm resilient, I can, you know, like I think we've got to be careful of that, like yeah, whether yeah. that's also being used as a shield from shield. your emotions. Because yeah. the only way for me I say to people, you've got to sit in the shit, those really horrible, that shame, the guilt, all those anger, you've actually got to sit there and experience it. Like that's what the truth is and they actually pass through you. So resilience in a way can be a way of avoiding those emotions but the only way through difficult emotions is through them and that's what I spent 20 years avoiding. <laughs> so, well, we've, yeah. we've got a lot to talk through on our podcast and it's going to be so great hosting this with you and we're going to be talking about things like meditation and looking at that internal focus and sense of identity and what that mm. means and we're going to spend a lot more time discussing those things aren't we yeah and like we said on our first episode like it's it's some of that deep work but it's also the really simple stuff like getting getting your exercise getting your meditation getting your diet right you know it's it is that basic stuff as well as the the, the deepest stuff and that's what we want to cover because we don't want to you don't want to overwhelm people any more than what people are but yeah. Well, Melanie, you've got a fascinating story and I know there's going to be a lot more that's going to come out when we interview other people and talk about some other issues, but I know it was tough going through that period of time. So thanks so much. I think people are going to really love hearing that, even though it might be difficult for people to listen to. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. Um Look, and if you want to send us some feedback, we'll have some links on our show notes where you can get in touch with us. But, Mel, it's been a fascinating conversation. Yeah, thanks very much. I can't wait to learn more and share more. Even though we've spent 10 years learning and sharing from each other, I think this is going to be a really good process for the both of us. Yeah, it'll be great. And I can't wait to interview you. About your story. Well, well, I can't wait either. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Mel. Thanks okay, very great. much. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Bye.